0: A couple of uh, passages but we'll be looking at passages in chapters 1 through 3 this morning but beginning uh, in our call in our um, hearing of scripture from romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 and there, then verses 15 through 17 let us hear and attend to the word of god paul a bond of jesus christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of god which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And now over to verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. We continue on this morning with uh, this series for Reformation Month, the month of November, uh, looking at the book of Romans, that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace. And so we continue this morning uh, in our first part of chapters 1 through 3. You might remember I said to you that natural law theology is not the same as the universal binding authority of the covenant of works because by the works of the law, no one can save himself. However, a broadly accepted understanding of natural law theology is that human reason retains the capacity to rightly think about God and be persuaded by outward proofs of arguments and evidences. I told you that there's a very broad spectrum uh, over this matter of natural law theology, and our uh, purpose is not to elaborate or to investigate Uh, along that spectrum, what different views have been about natural law theology. Um, This particular question about the use of proofs and evidences and arguments and to what degree human reason retains its capacity to rightly think about God uh, comes to the fore, it seems to, really in the department of apologetics. There's a lot of dispute and a lot of argument on that. Uh, It is worthwhile, it is beneficial, but it's not really where I want to put the focus. Um, Apart from the academic Disputes and and discussions about the the meaning or to what extent uh, we identify natural law theology, this is what I want you to understand. This is where I come down. This is what is most important to me. That the preaching of the new covenant Christian gospel along with scripture proofs, reasons, and evidences demonstrated by Trinitarian Christian baptism and the scriptural witness of the Lord's Supper are the primary means of obeying the Great Commission. Uh, I believe that's what Paul gets at in verses 1 through 6 that we read this morning and then over to to verses uh, 15 through 17. I'm coming to preach the gospel. I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of preaching the gospel. Chapter 10, he goes on to say, it's necessary that we preach the gospel. And then elsewhere throughout scripture. And so when Jesus says that we are to fulfill the Great Commission. If you examine and and look closely at that, apart from all the disputations and discussions about natural law theology along that spectrum, here's what we must affirm. That the preaching of the New Covenant Christian Gospel along with Scripture reasons and proofs and evidences demonstrated by Trinitarian Christian baptism and the scriptural witness of the Lord's Supper are the primary means of obeying the Great Commission. Now, this next statement in your study notes is uh, like a 12-course meal. It's a strong, distilled tonic of scriptural truth. Um, It is worth elaborating. We we don't have the time to elaborate on it, although I do believe that examining the survey of the Epistle to the Romans um, confirms it. And there are many questions that we'd want to ask. We've asked previously, what is the relationship to the Christian, to secular society? To what degree does the law of God direct uh, and bind human uh, culture? And that kind of thing. Those are a lot of disputed questions that are going on, but we need to start from the right foundation to begin to answer them. So this is what I want you to understand. This is that, that distilled uh, statement. The covenant of works continues as universally binding condemnation on all humanity as the basis for the creation mandate enumerated by the moral law of God, witnessed by conscience and scripture revelation for accountability to the triune creator God's holiness, standard of all that is righteous throughout the whole hierarchy of creation, and the ultimate fulfillment by the holiness, justice, and goodness of Jesus Christ For God's plan of salvation by the covenant of grace. And you might see that I bookended that statement with the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Uh, I hope that you would spend some time chewing on that statement. And seeking answers even from our study here in the book of Romans to the expansiveness and application of that statement. So this is what we are getting at. Therefore natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace without the special revelation of the new covenant gospel fulfilling the covenant of grace. Natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace without the special revelation of the new covenant gospel fulfilling the covenant of grace. Um, Have you ever considered what it would be like if we didn't have the canon of New Testament Scripture? Here in the book of Romans, it's really interesting that what Scripture documentation, what Scripture reference, what Scriptural exposition the Apostle Paul uses over and over in the book of Romans. You know what it is, don't you? He's constantly quoting and appealing to the Old Testament Scriptures and to the stories that are elaborated for us. David and Moses and Abraham. So he quotes the scriptures. He uses the biblical progressive revelation of the Old Testament. And by the Holy Spirit of God, this is documented for us as new covenant scripture. The canon of the New Testament. What would we do if we didn't have the canon of the New Testament? I know that's another subject altogether that's very worthy in terms of God's providence, inspiration and providence in giving and keeping for us the what we call the New Testament canon of scripture. That's why it's so disputed. But think about it for a moment, how blessed we are, how wonderful it is that we have, for example, this book of Romans, this letter to the Romans by the inspired apostle Paul elaborating for us the gospel of the new covenant of grace. This is what Paul says, as we've already heard, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. A question came to me this past week about what Paul means by the Jew first here. And it's a matter of the benefits and the chronological priority that God gave us and revealed to us the truth and the promise and the coming of Jesus Christ through Old Covenant Judaism. But it didn't end there. To the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul goes on, and we'll see him elaborating to say, say to us that there is only one way of salvation. When he talks about the, the benefits and the blessings and even the chronological priority that God used in terms of bringing uh, salvation to be known through Judaism, but not ending there, that there's only one way of salvation for the Jew and for the Gentile. And that's a main point that Paul is driving at. And one that seems to have been attempted to be unraveled by false teachings. That there is some other way of salvation or that the Jews have a priority and a a place uh, as the elect of God to be saved a different way. And Paul is arguing emphatically against that, as all of Scripture does. Now what we're going to do as you'll see an example this morning as we do the, follow this survey of the epistle to the Romans, is that we're going to use key verses that are referenced for this complete survey. This morning, I'm going to be uh, pointing out to you key verses in chapters 1 through 3, and then we'll follow that up with the remaining parts 2 and 3 and 4 that will come. But these key v- verses uh, are offered in support of concise expositional doctrinal statements, And those are in the study notes that that I'll be following. The key verses, that concise then expositional doctrinal statement. And then what I want you to understand is that the verses between the key verses give explanation and, and illustrations intended to connect and to confirm the theme that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace. So we have these key verse sections I'm going to even give you some examples of where. Here's the key verse section. Now here's some explanation and illustration that Paul uses about that doctrinal statement. And I hope that you will use this survey and go back and read between the lines. Read between the key verses. Because often the key verses are simply a synthesis of of that concise, fuller argument that the Apostle Paul makes. So this morning we look at chapters 1 through 3. And I know you're saying, there's no way we could give a full exposition uh, of chapters 1 through 3. And that's not the intent. We're doing a survey, but of powerful, insightful statements that should direct us and guide us in this uh, matter, and this theme that, that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace. So in chapters 1 through 3, the moral law of God has continuing universal conscience-binding force requiring accountability from the covenant of works to Creator God for Jews and for Gentiles, in short, everybody. And we'll be looking at this, and this is what I want to say, this is the best that natural law can offer. Where Paul comes in conclusion in chapter 3, verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So in this first section of chapters 1 through 3, the moral law of God has continuing universal conscience-binding force requiring accountability from the covenant of works to Creator God for everyone. So let's look at how the Apostle Paul develops that. We start out in chapter 1. And the key verses here, verses 18 through 21. I know you're familiar with these, but, but listen to them again. Verses 18 through 21 of chapter 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here, the revealing of God's wrath, who is the source of all truth, is predicated on his singular power, Rightness, glory, and goodness as creator God. Inexcusably suppressed by human sinfulness. Note this. Human sinfulness grossly violating the first table of the moral law of God. Look at verses 23 and 25. I I don't know if you've noticed this before. But Paul's application here comes from the first table of duty to God. To glorify and to acknowledge and to worship God as the only God. And so what does he write in verse 23? And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Look at verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creator, or the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So in the first application here, Paul makes it clear that there is accountability to God as creator. His wrath is revealed, he's the source of all truth and predicated upon his power, rightness, glory, and goodness, the suppressing of the glory of God is inexcusable, and it's an open violation of the first table of the moral law of God. This is further aggravated by a debased mind perverting the second table of the moral law of God with approval by collective endorsement, like a cheering on. Uh, What we read in the balance of chapter 1 is that the world is like a cosmic riot. Against God's law. And to see this by illustration, look at verses 28 through 32 and note here how Paul applies the second table of the law. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, Against the law of God, by which God reveals his wrath, reveals his holiness, reveals his goodness, reveals his claim to be creator of God, reveals that all are accountable to him by virtue of his being God and creator. They know this. And collectively, they endorse cheering one another another on in their spite and lawlessness against God in the first and second table of the moral law as Paul illustrates it here. So this is what I was saying to you about reading the verses in between, the key verses. You can see how Paul elaborates, explains, and illustrates the doctrinal point that's being made. Our next key verses are chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So God's truthful judgment, being knowable, universal, irrepressible, and inescapable, is self-consciously witnessed in the human soul for condemnation, for for righteous judgment against the hypocrisy of self-righteousness By human works for salvation. This is a a, a major truth that Scripture reveals that Paul calls on and that empowers the preaching of the gospel. Because I know that all sinners know that they're hypocrites before God. I don't have to prove it. I've told you before, like a, a rhetorical question, you cannot unhear a rhetorical question. You may try to suppress it, you may try to dismiss it, you can't unhear it. And so the law of God, the moral law of God in God's truthful judgment is knowable. We're told that it is in the human conscience and witness in the creation itself. It is something that cannot be silenced even though it is denied and hated and repressed and and run away from and tried to be uh, corrupted and uh, twisted in all manner of attempts. But it is universal, irrepressible, inescapable in its being knowable. And so this is where we have confidence in witnessing to the gospel because humans know that they're self-righteous and can't save themselves before God. We may have to strip away a lot of attempted arguments, but this is where it starts. The... uh, Next key verses are verses 11 through 16 of chapter 2. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law... These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Does that just overwhelm you? The scope of what the Apostle Paul says here is overwhelming. The impartiality of God enforces the covenant of works accountability from the moral law of God on everybody, universally. It's not only universally conscience-binding, however, but also for gospel witness to the day of judgment. Here again, I stake upon the word of God the claim that when I preach the day of judgment, I don't have to convince people. There is conscience witness to that. Just like there is conscience witness to God the Creator. It may be suppressed, it may be covered over, it may be denied, it may be hated. But the reason it gets those kinds of responses is because in the human soul, it's known. And so, God's impartiality enforces the covenant of works accountability to the moral law of God. But this is not only conscience binding universally on everyone. It goes beyond that. It's also the gospel witness to the day of judgment. The next key verses are verses 3 through 6 of chapter 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Paul is anticipating objections here. Verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? So you can hear Paul anticipating these objections, turning it in terms of uh, what people try to excuse themselves in and comes back to the fact that God will judge the world. God will judge everyone. God will judge you. God will judge me. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul is driving home. Continuing accountability to the moral law of God from the covenant of works also establishes the covenantal order for the covenant of grace by which God's faithfulness and righteousness justly, that is rightly, pledges final judgment and salvation of the world. I want to give you another illustration of the development of this thought here in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. See how the Apostle Paul answers these objections? Verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Remember back to the impartiality of God? There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the covenant of grace, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Not because He's partial, He's impartial, but because He's gracious. And by the covenant of grace, based on Christ and His work, His person and work, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's a passage that further explains and illustrates the point that was being made about the impartiality of God and then the continuing accountability of the moral law from the covenant of works. See, it establishes the covenantal order, the covenantal order that finds our hope and salvation in the covenant of grace by which God's faithfulness and righteousness justly and rightly pledges not only final judgment. Paul's moving on and says it's not just final judgment. Yes, that is sure. But there is also salvation, the salvation of the world. So where are you? Are you facing final judgment? Are you looking forward to salvation, salvation of the world through Christ? The next uh, key verses come in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Everybody is under the law of the covenant of works. And the moral law of God, accountable to Creator God. Everyone, the whole world, is guilty before God. By knowing the moral law of God according to the covenant of works, everyone is guilty of sin against God's holiness, justice, and goodness. Paul argues that it's not just in the revelation of the law, it's in the conscience itself. It's encoded within the human uh, 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 conscience. So when I say about knowing the covenant of works, I'm not talking about necessarily knowing the creation story or what relationship that Adam had to God before the fall. What we're being told here is that the moral law of God is encoded in the human conscience. It's encoded in such a way as that everyone knows they're accountable to God in terms of the covenant of works that they cannot save themselves, that they need something to save them. And so... Everyone is guilty of sin against God's holiness, justice, and goodness by which no human works are able to boast in self-righteousness before God. That's a mask and a game that people play. People play mind games. They try to boast of themselves. Uh, We have many examples of that in Jesus dealing with the Pharisees, of Paul dealing with the Judaizers. These are things that are brought out to us because they are a continual attempt to disguise or to escape or to suppress the witness to conscience that we cannot save ourselves and that our self-righteousness is is, um, hypocritical. So there is no boasting of self-justification before God that will stand. And then coming to the conclusion of uh, this first part in chapters 1 through 3, you can see verses 27 through 31 are the next uh, key verses Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised. I need to point out to you that by and through are the same Greek preposition. Paul's not making some kind of difference here. He's he's simply restating. So he will justify the circumcised by faith, and he will uh, justify the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then make void the law by faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so declaring how God is just and the justifier of sinners affirms the continuing validity of the moral law of God by the covenant of works for just condemnation by law guilt. But it doesn't stop there. Declaring how God is just and the justifier of sinners also affirms the covenant of grace for gift salvation by faith righteousness from Christ who fulfilled and confirmed all the law of God. That's what Paul is getting at when he says this is how the law is established. We don't do away with the law. We're not throwing the law away. That's one of the arguments and one of the false charges that were made. And that's one of the false charges that continues today against reformed doctrine. But it's a false charge. In Christ, the law is established. And we're going to learn more about why that's a joy and not a condemnation. You already know. But we'll be seeing Paul develop that thought. You'll see as we come next time to chapters 7 and 8, and then parallel that with chapters 12 through 15, explaining Christian salvation as regeneration by gift faith, not law works, through the covenant of grace, with a new gospel relationship to the moral law of God from Jesus Christ revealing Savior God. Isn't that thrilling? Yeah, the first three chapters are heavy. As a matter of fact, I mentioned to you that I think that's one of the reasons that chapters 4 through 6 are, are kind of overlooked. What we know about chapters 1 through 3, how heavy chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans are. And then we almost jump over it because of the, the seeming conflict and the confusion of chapter 7 we're all trying to get at. What is Paul saying here? It's so tense and, and there's so much uh Uh, conflict going back and forth but but then we hear chapter 8 and we just want to park it we want to we want to just live in chapter 8 and (laughs) for good reason but I think that we often overlook chapters 4 through 6 and so we'll come back to chapters 4 through 6 I told you that that's intentional I'm taking it out of chronology out of the order of the chapters for uh, emphasis and for purpose but next week in uh, part two we're going to look at chapters 7 and 8 And then chapters 12 through 15 explaining Christian salvation as regeneration by gift faith, not law works, through the covenant of grace. And this is very important. With a new gospel relationship to the moral law of God through Jesus Christ revealing Savior God. I mentioned to you before that if you were to read these chapters ahead of time, it would be so good for you. You can, you can read these chapters every day. Chapters 7 and 8, I, I think you need to read them together. <laughs> That's one of the problems I think we have with chapter 7 And sometimes. You just read it apart or in isolation. You should read chapter 7 and 8 together. And then also skip over to chapters 12 through 15. Read those together. These chapters parallel Paul's thought and development uh, in his reasons and themes. And so I hope you'll do that. Uh, I know that chapter 13 is, is well known in it. There again, I think it's a mistake that chapter 13 is taken out of context. When we hear about hear about Romans chapter 13, we typically think of uh, the civil magistrate and the authority that the civil magistrate is to have and what relationship we as Christian believers are to have to the civil magistrate. That's just one point. Paul is using that as an illustration of the fifth commandment. And if you read further on in chapter 13, you'll see that he enumerates the other five commandments Part, uh, commandments of the second table of the law. And he's saying that even as Christian believers, we still have a relationship, we still have an accountability to what God is doing with his moral law. And so it's a very important chapter, but it shouldn't be taken out of the context. So we'll be looking at those chapters uh, next week in part two as we continue the survey of the book of Romans. As we come to rejoice in the new covenant, we have it set before us this morning what Jesus